This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. How's everybody doing? You doing all right? Everybody gives the church answer. Yes, great. Yeah, everything's wonderful. Okay, well, hey, good to see you. Glad that you're, you're here this morning. And before we get into our message, I want to uh, ask you a couple of things. One, uh, at 1230, I, I know you're the, the first service, but you know maybe you're going to go to, to uh, breakfast or brunchfest or whatever a little later, uh, and you want to come back around 1230 and help us move chairs and uh, picnic and get in picnic tables. Uh, for the volunteer dinner. Uh, if you're uh, interested in doing that, we would love your help. Other thing, uh, you know, new year and time to update information. So <clears throat> over the last year, whether you're, uh, you just came in the last year and you're not sure that we have your information, or two, you're just sure that you gave us that information in the past year, but now as I say it, you're trying to think to yourself, yeah, I, I, like, I filled out something, right? I, so let me, invite, let me encourage you, uh, take one of the Connect cards uh, in the uh, seat back pocket in front of you, and if you would just update us on your information, make sure we have your information. Uh, it's amazing to me just in, a, in the information age how often people don't actually share their information, right? We've kind of been trained uh, through bad experiences. You don't give out, you know, you, you have your disposable email address, I bet, you know. Uh, you have maybe even the throwaway number. It's like some Google number that rings to some phone that you don't answer anymore, uh, you know, or it doesn't even go anywhere. Anyhow, uh, just in case... I would really encourage you, if this is your church home, like, make sure you give us the, the, the right email address where you'll actually read the newsletter, and uh, make sure that uh, we have your, ad, your physical address, things like that. Uh, it's really helpful. I think you'll find it a blessing as well. So uh, if you need to, if you've changed information last year, you're not sure we have complete information, uh, or even you've just come in the last year and then you're just not sure you know you filled out a card but you didn't know what you put on it or maybe it was the throwaway email or whatever uh, let me encourage you please take some time fill that out and then uh after service if you would you know the black boxes where we do our offering you could just drop that card in one of those black boxes and uh, we will make sure to update our records all right mark chapter six today mark chapter six now, as we dig into the text, let me remind you of a few things uh, that I've said from the onset of the series. I keep reminding everybody every week. Uh, so if you've been here every week and you're getting tired of hearing these things, you know, just you know, give it two minutes here and let me tell everybody else. For those of you who haven't been here every week or this is your first time here, uh, one of the things that you'll notice as you dig into the Gospels is each one of the Gospels is uh, written a little differently, uh, the same accounts, same events, but they're typically in a different order. That's because the Gospels are not written in a chronological order. They are written and the stories of those events are put together uh, sometimes in a, in a uh, partially chronological order, but primarily those things are put together as the author, the, uh, the, the biographer, is trying to convey a particular point. 
In the case of Matthew, we're talking about a gospel that is very, uh, very Hebrew in its thought process. It goes deeply into the uh, Old Testament prophecies, uh, dealing with Messiah, but also just the whole history of Israel. And so there's a lot in terms of uh, family lineages and things like that that are very informative if you're Jewish to be able to follow those things out understand them, understand their historical context, so forth. Um, in the case of Luke, uh, who was a, a doctor, a physician, Greek uh, historian, uh, and he's writing and giving us an orderly account to a, uh, a particular uh, group of people uh, that would have been familiar with some of the events in first century Palestine that unfolded, but were not yet known in their fullness. In the case of Mark, Mark is written, it's very fast-paced, it begins uh, with the, uh, John the Baptist on the scene, skips the birth of Jesus, uh, and uh, it does not deal with a lot of uh, post-resurrection material. Uh, unlike the other Gospels, it is specific in the way it is written. Uh, it is sometimes called the, uh, a revelatory Gospel. Uh, a lot of things talked about mystery, hence the term unveiled mysteries for our series. And that's because he is constantly hinting at things that he is revealing. He's a great storyteller, and he puts together uh, those events and things in, in an order to bring us to a conclusion. He's helping us to understand. So his assumption is that you and I don't already know the story. He is writing uh, to those first century uh, people who would be interested in knowing who Jesus was, and he is writing an account and such that it explains to us slowly unveiling the mystery of who Jesus is, declaring actually from the very beginning that Jesus is the Son of God, but he doesn't come right out and say it. He, he, he uh, references some things, and then slowly throughout the time there's this secret that is being talked about, this mystery of where Jesus doesn't want everything to be known uh, until the time is right, and then as time unfolds, uh, then the mystery is revealed of just exactly who Jesus is. It is also a very kingdom-centric gospel, and so there is constantly a focus on the kingdom of God as being both present now in, in the time and life of Jesus, that he himself is the bearer of the kingdom, and because of that, the kingdom is present, the kingdom's at work in the world. There's also an awareness that his kingdom is not of this world, and as such, because it has not come in its fullest, final, revelatory form, there are the realities of the tensions between those two kingdoms as they come into conflict and the battle that ensues that continues even to this day. And so a uh, heavy focus on the kingdom, but this expectation that the kingdom is part of the life and ministry of Jesus, the life and ministry of the disciples uh, and the apostles, and that a fuller expression of that kingdom would overtake the world ultimately in his final return, but that you and I live in that place of the tension between the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Last week in chapter 5, we really kind of turned our focus to seeing the kingdom of God coming into greater conflict with the powers of this world through deliverance, through healing, through the raising of the dead, revealing to us just who it is who has come and what his kingdom is all about, setting the stage for us to understand greater and greater how this kingdom is in conflict and why that matters, specifically how, why it matters to us. 
Today, as we look at chapter 6, the theme is focused on faith. It's very central to the text. Even in the moments where the word does not actually appear, there's still the implication, this heavy implication of the role of faith in the experience of the people and the experience of, of uh, encounters with God. And so, uh, very central to our discussion this morning. With that said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, starting verse 1. I'm, if you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have. The one in my, your lap is my favorite. Mark 6, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could, not do, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. As he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and uh, and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent, and they cast out demons and anointed them with oil, many who were sick, and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why the miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah, and others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to her, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask for me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
and went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him what they had done and taught, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to even to eat. And when they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot all from the towns and got there ahead of them. And he went ashore and he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they'd found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces and of the fish. And of those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him on to the other side of Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw uh, that they might, were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And at the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region, began to bring they're sick on beds to wherever he, they heard he was, and whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid their sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Interesting enough in this passage, probably one of the most notable things in the entire passage is something that we have read, you've, the likelihood is if you've read this chapter, you've read it over and over and absolutely missed it. I know that for a, a long, long time, I never saw it. And when it was finally pointed out to me, like I just, I, I had to go explore like everything about it because uh, it was, it's so significant to the passage, to our understanding of the passage. You see, in the New Testament, there are only two times that Jesus was ever amazed, or as it says in the ESV, that Jesus marveled. I want you to think about that for just a moment when you think about what it means to be amazed, right? I mean, like if you're amazed, it's, that's that kind of that slack jaw response like, whoa, right? I mean, you just kind of, you're, you're in awe of what has happened. Uh, they marveled the way the, the ESV says it there. Only two times. One of them's in Matthew chapter 19. It's, it's a really good 
1. It's, it says that he uh, marveled in, at their faith, about what great faith they had. They, and it, it's talking about the centurion, and he is just taken by surprise, right? I want you to think about who we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus, the Son of God. The fact that he marvels at anything ought to be like, you know, something we ought to take note of and not just kind of move along. But we do that because, you know, just we marvel at things all the time. You know, I, I, I remember, you know, just the first time I ever saw like a digital scale and sat there and played with it, right? You know, and I thought, wow, I am easily entertained. Anyhow, you know, I, I, we marvel at things. Things capture our imagination, just some of the simplest things sometimes. But that one other time in the entire New Testament that Jesus marveled is right here. When Jesus marveled at their unbelief. When you stun the Son of God with your response, with your lack of belief, like, how debased would you have to be to leave Jesus stunned at your unbelief? And I want to point out something. See, Jesus is there in his hometown of Nazareth. He's known these people most of his life. And yet he finds their hardness of heart their unbelief as shocking. And here's the important part. It wasn't that they didn't believe the miracles. It wasn't that they didn't believe the healing. Actually, when you read the, the comments, that's the part that ought to be the most unsettling to you as you read that text. It's the part we just skip over. Listen to their, their comments. Isn't he well-spoken? Isn't this great? I mean, where did he get such wisdom? And then they begin to belittle it. Listen what they say. Uh, you know, I mean, come on, guys. We know who this is. This is Mary's son. You know what they're saying? They didn't call him Joseph's son. They said, this is Mary's son. Let me translate that into the vernacular. Isn't this the bastard kid? The one that, remember when we were all ashamed of them? We're not even sure where he came from. How dare he? Can you imagine being so hard of heart and so set in your ideology that when you saw signs and wonders, right, you see and you hear and you look at all those things and you go, man, that's, that's all really good stuff. Wow, that is, man, you know, but it's come from that guy. And we know his family lineage. We know his past. We, we think we know all about him. And they they are able, after seeing signs and wonders that are clearly the work of God, go, doesn't matter. That must not be God. That must not be God. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this whole issue of like 
the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I can't think of a better example. When you go, yeah, I don't like where it's coming from, so clearly that means it just couldn't be gone. And so here in the midst of this, Jesus hears their word, knows these people, grown up with them, And as he's teaching, I mean, they let him read in the synagogue, right? I mean, like, they were interested. They wanted to know. They'd heard all these things. They were excited. One of the hometown boys has done well. And then, yeah, but he's that kid. It really is shocking. Kind of concerning when it comes to this whole issue of faith. Because their unbelief is not the miracles. Their unbelief is not the wisdom. Their unbelief is that his family of origin is beneath their understanding of who could be a holy man, who could be a good, who could be the kind of person that God could choose. Who could be the kind of person that God loves? You know, when you and I look at like the Sermon on the Mount and we begin with the Beatitudes, I, can I point out there's nothing particularly like uh, great in the Beatitudes about being a person who is mournful or being a person who has been downtrodden or something like that. He's not saying like that is the ideal attainment. What you really want to be is mournful, downtrodden, you know, uh, poor and pitiful and... That, that's not, if you're, if you're reading that, then you're, you're subscribing to a view around who Jesus is and about life that is just not supported by the rest of the New Testament or by the weight of the Scriptures. But if you and I understand that what he's saying is that even the mournful, even the people who are poor, blind, pitiful, naked, even, even the people who seem to be afar off, even the people who seem unreachable, that God uses them, that God reaches out to them, that there's no place that you get so far away from God that he would not reach you. I, I think that's a pretty significant message for you and I, isn't it? I mean especially at times, uh, maybe even that where we've walked with the Lord in a season and then maybe in another season we're not walking with the Lord and we start to think that maybe, I, I just, maybe I'm too far gone, maybe I can't be reached, maybe there's something wrong with me or whatever else, and, and there's this constant sense within the Scriptures. It, it, we're reminded that when they are looking at the scenario of the man that was born blind and the first thing the disciples say is, who sinned? Him or his parents? Because the presumption must be that if someone's born blind, that somebody did something to deserve it. And oftentimes our conclusion is when we see people in brokenness or hurting or different situations where they really need God to intervene, sometimes we can have that attitude. Even though today we, like, we, we would say, no, that's not true, we, like, that's socially unacceptable to say in our day and time, like emotionally, 
oftentimes that is actually where we go when we see people having a hard time. Well, they must have done something to deserve it. You ever thought that? I mean, not you, that you'd want to raise your hand or anything, but... For the Jew, the association of a man with his mother rather than his father was to imply, of course, illegitimacy. Here's the other part, is you'll remember I was talking about the fact that this was a gospel primarily written to Greeks, and that when it points out that he's a carpenter, it definitely puts him at a lower station in the world because he had worked with his hands in their world. That means he would be unable to be a holy man. So Jesus is just kind of like busting every paradigm for the world in which he lived in. He is known to be that guy who we're not sure about his parentage origin. We're not sure, you know, and then he's worked with his hands and everything else. And so the conclusion on every front is that this man couldn't be used by God, and then he is. Mark tells us, these things just to kind of shake us up on what does it mean, what is real holiness. And then we're drawn into this whole issue of the atmosphere of faith versus an atmosphere of lacking faith. Because as all these things happen, it says that Jesus, because of their unbelief, could only heal a few people, but could do no great works. Why don't you let that kind of settle in your heart for just a moment. Think about the fact that Jesus was limited by the faith of the people present. I don't think that means that God can't. I'm simply saying that there is, whenever there is a, an atmosphere of, a, of, un, of disbelief, I'm not talking about just a lack of faith. Like oftentimes we see where Jesus is encountering people and they say, I, he says, well, Lord, if you can do that. And he says, if you have faith, nothing's impossible. And he says, well, I have faith, but help me. Help me with my unbelief. Help me with my lack of faith, right? And there's this, this expectation that God can, uh, but they're struggling with that. Have you, you ever been there? You, as a believer in Christ, where you would have great faith that God can, but somehow you're wondering if maybe you're worthy enough or, or whether He would help you or what your situation is or what God's doing in the world and stuff. And, and so there's moments where and there's, we, we believe, we say we believe, we have confidence that God is able, and yet there's this sense of our doubting those moments. But there's, and so He responds to those moments and bringing healing and hope. But this is different. This is unbelief. This is the kind of attitude that sees it and still hardens its heart. It's even working in the disciples to some level, right? There, it says that, that, they were, that they did not understand the feeding of the 5,000 and that their hearts were hardened. Like there's a sense of which they've seen and they still just doubt. There's a hardcore something going on deep within. 
And, and I will tell you that, you know, like when there's an atmosphere of faith, like that it opens the door. Keep in mind, with almost every healing, Jesus comments on the faith of the person being healed. Now, I wouldn't want to overdevelop that into a formula for healing, but I will simply say that when people come with expectancy into the presence of God, there does seem to be a greater manifestation of signs and wonders. And where there is an atmosphere of disbelief, I'm not just talking about struggling with the level of faith that I have or whatever, but I'm talking about just a, a kind of a hardened, like, I don't know, show me. Right? We, we see Jesus encountering uh, Herod and others at different times, and they're like, or I'm saying to people all the time that say, well, show us a sign, then we'll believe. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. And he comments back to them, you know, it doesn't matter how many signs I show you. It doesn't matter what, what I do. The truth is you're not, you've chose not to believe. It was the truth of when the Pharisees saw the miracles over and over again. It's the truth of why Judas was able to betray him, though he had participated in the feeding of the 5,000, right? Though he had raised the dead, though he had seen demons cast out by, by his own hand, and yet he comes to that moment, that place where he's able to betray Jesus because in spite of having seen all of those things, he can just turn his back on him is a hardness of heart that categorizes that. And can I just tell you, sometimes in the midst of the people of God even, there is sometimes a little bit of an attitude that we can develop unintentionally, but it can still develop within even a gathering of believers of just kind of like, yeah, show me. Hasn't happened in my day and time. Show me. And, and here's one of the things is that When people come with no expectation or even exhibit strong disbelief, the reason it stifles signs and wonders is because God is not a sideshow. And he won't be treated as such. When people demand a sign, Jesus would not give it to them. But when he healed Jairus' daughter, he put everyone out of the room except those who believed. It's notable. Look then how this moment of unbelief in Nazareth segues into the sending of the twelve. He tells them, now, if they receive you, then bless them. Go into their home, bring blessing upon their home. If they receive you, proclaim the word. If they receive you, but if they don't, shake it off, and it will serve as a testimony against them. What's happening Everywhere they went and they were received and these same kinds of healings, deliverance, signs, and accompanied them. And in the places where they were received, it brought blessing. In the places where they were rejected, it brought judgment. In other words, that the atmosphere of faith either brought a sense of blessing to the people and the overflow of what God was doing, or the resistance the unbelief brought a level of judgment. I don't know about you, but I, I just, I, I find that disconcerting, right? I mean, just this sense of like, 
God, I want to be the kind of person who presses in with, with a great sense of faith and expectation and who doesn't look at the things of God and say, yeah, but, but you know, um, God, if you don't you know, do what I want or how I want it or whatever else that, that I, I feel free to dismiss the works of God. This continues throughout the rest of the chapter. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on the water, the healing of the people in the Gennesaret region. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just this sense of expectation that, that goes with that. Kind of interesting about that in itself. Uh, if I could get the map for just a second. So Gennesaret is this area over here. If you look, you see Capernaum, you see the Sea of Galilee right there, that smallest body of water. Uh, everything kind of to the right side of that. And I, I don't have time to, to go into it a whole lot uh, today. I went into a bit last week. Uh, but that area is sometimes called Gennesaret. It's also sometimes called the Decapolis. It is an area that is mixed between Jew and Gentile. It is a political hotbed uh, back in that day uh, as Israel was being known as Palestine. Rome had declared it Palestine, no longer calling it Israel, denying the, uh, the nation state of Israel and, and having designated as a region of Rome known as Palestine. That's why that name, the battle over that name, Palestine versus Israel, continues today. That same region continues to be uh, a hotbed of battles and, and all to this day. Uh, it's always been kind of a, a mixed uh, place uh, and, and a, a point of political uh, activity. So kind of interesting that it continues that way today. But last week, we pointed out that this is where legion came out and, you know, and Jesus cast the legion of demons out of the man and then the people said, get out of here, man. You know, you, you're, you're dangerous. I don't, we don't know what to do with you. And they asked him to leave. Here in this account, he comes back to this area, lands on the shore, and what did they do this time? This time, they're carrying their sick and their wounded. They're carrying their people who are, are struggling. They're bringing their demoniacs out because now they've, things have happened. Time has bubbled up, and they're beginning to think about what it was and who he was. And, and now their attitude has shift. They've shifted from an attitude of unbelief. They saw the things that Jesus did and still said, get away from us. And now they've shifted to an attitude of belief. And so there in the Decapolis region, in Gennesaret area, where there had been great unbelief and there are Gentiles and Jews and people of all different backgrounds, now they're like pouring in. There's a sense of great expectation. Do you, do you see what's happening here? How the... the culture, the climate has shifted so that now even in this region where Jews and Gentiles gather together, there's a sense of expectation and he's doing amazing healing that he could not even do in his hometown. Isn't that fascinating? How the climate can shift in a moment. I, I, I tell you, it, it can shift even among a group of believers in a moment when we when we begin to open our hearts to the idea that not that God must perform or do for me, but then with, I come instead with a sense of expectation, uh, of belief. When we have confidence in who He is, but also 
in his attitude about us. Now, I, I just got a comment to you just on, on a kind of a personal note in a way of ministry kind of stuff. Over the years, you know, I've seen some pretty spectacular healings at moments when I lacked faith. I'm not, I, I'm not talking about like, I just, you know, struggling with this. I've seen some pretty spectacular healings at moments when I lacked faith, but here's what I can tell you. In those moments, the person who received the healing was full of faith. Like, I was the one who was lying. They, they just said, would you pray for me, you know, and they're like, and I was like, oh, yeah, and then I politely explained all the reasons why, you know, it may or may not happen because they were so excited that I was like thinking to myself, like, I'm, I don't want to set them up for disappointment, you know, I mean, like, I believe God does this, but, uh, you know, I also know that, you know, many a times I've prayed for somebody that was sick and just got sick myself, so, you know, I, I like, uh, I, I, you know, just, what's going to happen? I don't know, and then we prayed for them, and, and some of the most amazing healings in my, that I've seen in my life um, happened in those moments. But, and so I, I just resist anything that smells like a formula for, you know, that says Jesus must heal or if, you know, uh, the other, the person has, to, if they didn't have enough faith and, 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 or whatever. There is another team on the field. There really is. And, and that's part of the reason for this insertion of John the Baptist then there at verses 14 through 29. See, we live in a fallen world. So we have this little, what we called a Mark and Sandwich last week, a story within a story. We're told about how King Herod is looking at Jesus and he's wondering about healings and signs and wonders and, and, and we're told that Herod was afraid, specifically because he thought it was John the Baptist whom he murdered, having come back from the dead. And so it goes into this account of why that mattered, why Herod was the, the person uh, that, you know, and all the sordid details of Herod lusting over his stepdaughter and trying to seduce her, and then how it backfired on him, you know, and put him in a terrible place publicly. You know, always, you know, you always hate when the lusting gets you in trouble. So, and uh, at the same time, Mark's gospel continues as a polemic, right, against the world powers, pointing out how corrupt they are. Because look at who Herod really is, although he's calling himself the king of Israel. Man, this guy is bankrupt. He's got his brother's wife. He's lusting over his stepdaughter as she dances, makes her promises, trying to get something that he's, you know, hoping for. And then she doesn't ask what he's hoping for. She asks for something that humiliates him. And, and, and in the moment that he's in that position, he is willing to kill John the Baptist in order to save face. Listen, church. When the political powers of this world respect you and fear you, that doesn't mean that they won't kill you just to save face. The powers of this world will not save you. 
They did not save John the Baptist. And here's the thing. We're not to that part of the story yet. Spoiler alert. But Herod will not save Jesus despite his regrets over John. I want you to think about what's happening here. They're, they're giving us a little hint who he thinks Jesus is. When Jesus is brought to him, what's the first thing he said? I've heard you do signs. Show me one. And in the end, he concludes, I, I see nothing wrong with this man. But he passes the buck back to Pilate. He doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't want, he's trying to save face. He could have protected Jesus in that moment and said, I'll take the hit. He sends him back to Pilate. Pilate could not afford the hit. I don't have time to like go into all the details. We'll do that when we get there, but I'll simply say this. Pilate was already in trouble with Caesar because his mentor tried to overthrow Caesar and become Caesar. And when your mentor is the guy that tried to overthrow the king, the king doesn't think and look upon you very fondly, does he? And so Pilate was already in trouble politically. Hence the questions, or the statement by the Jews, if you don't put this man to death, you are no friend of Caesar. It was a political play that had a lot of power beyond just empty words. Herod could have protected him. What does he do? Despite his great regrets that we're learning about right here, Despite the fact of who he thinks this is, and this is his opportunity at redemption, he will not choose the opportunity of redemption. Instead, he will gladly pass the buck. It's important for you and I to remember, as followers of Jesus, that persecution in the history of the church, the blood of the martyrs has watered the seeds of faith throughout history. It has been normative in throughout church history that we have not been able to depend on the powers and authorities of the world. And we are setting ourselves up for a fool's game if we think that they're going to now. So, Herod will protect himself, his position, and his political clout above everything else. When you proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the world and its power cease to be your friend. They might become short-term enamored. They might even invite you to speak before kings like they did Paul. But the very nature of the gospel will always put you at odds with the powers and authorities of this world. I'm not saying that for effect. I'm not saying that to be dramatic. I'm saying that because the New Testament constantly tells us that very thing. And the reality is that you and I, we live in the USA, and so we often disregard those warnings, and we could be lulled into believing that we're exempt from all such tyranny. But here's the thing. While we certainly have it better than the rest of the world on this point, hands down, we must never allow ourselves the luxury of thinking that human powers and authorities are on the same page as the kingdom of God, not even our own powers of our own country, not even when they're led by Christian people. If you want proof, 
Let me point to the track record of what we call Christian nations. Italy, Germany, and the not-so-United Kingdom. Some of the most secular, ardently secular places on the planet, still in their charter, that they're Christian nations. We have to remember we live in a fallen world. We also remember that nations are not homogeneous in their makeup. Not everyone is a Christian, even when they say they are. And they're not even saying that anymore. Not everyone shares our values. And as well, there are other nations, and the reality of wars and conflicts and criminal activity in the lot reminds us that the kingdoms of this world, although they will become the kingdoms of our God and Christ, are not yet. So let me say this in the clearest way possible. I love my country. I'm in no hurry to be governed by China or Russia. Hello? I love the advantages of living in this country. I also have both kids in the military and those who work for the Department of Defense. Those are realities of the governments of men. Wars and rumors of wars will continue all the way to the end. So when I tell you that government of God does not advance through guns and bombs or by oppression and espionage. I'm not teaching you to be a pacifist, nor am I living in a dream world. But it is why I don't really believe in Christian countries, but rather Christians doing work in a country who will be moral and upright as they govern in the world. But we cannot confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of men. When the kingdoms of men do things that are ungodly, if you remember that, you will not be surprised or devastated because our hope was never in those things. Never forget, Jesus warned his disciples that persecution and suffering are a normal part of being a Christian. And if we are like Jesus, then the world will hate us. And if the world doesn't hate us, we probably ought to ask why not trying to pick a fight, not trying to be obnoxious. I just mean simply like, if you live in that counterculture, if you are a witness to the goodness, the kindness, the mercy of Christ, you will just stick out like a sore thumb. But be not afraid. You live your life to the glory of God. We put our hand, ourselves into the hands of Jesus. We lean into the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And here's what happens. As we do those things, even as we come into conflict, even as we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, the more we lean in, what actually happens is those circumstances even unravel around us, as events happen around us that we don't like, as whether they are political or social or a combination of both or, or however they develop, like when we watch those things start to uh, unravel around us or happen around us or we hear uh, voices that are contrary to the things of God, uh, listen, what happens when you press in and you listen to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in the midst of those things is that our ability to experience God and hear His voice and do what He says grows instead of shrinks. And you know how I know that? Because we've had the freedom to proclaim the gospel literally for hundreds of years here, and the church is waning. 
And there's places all over the world where the gospel is flourishing right now, where the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is illegal. And so here's what I know is that in the midst of, uh, of, of persecution and trial and everything else, that God is up to the task. And it will actually, if we will let him, it will be an opportunity to grow our faith in that moment. Now, I'm not saying I'm in a hurry to go get you know, persecuted. And like I said, please don't do it, go out there and do something stupid just to, you know, like, don't be, you know, foolish. But I'm simply saying like a snowball rolling down a hill. You know, you just, there's a gathering of faith as we go through experiences and difficulties and, and things. And, and then and also as we experience greater healing, greater boldness. Of, and, and here's the thing. God is working in the midst of that. So we've got these three different accounts, and we watch the disciples, right? right? They've been sent out, and they've had some faith experiences, but now they get done with the feeding of the 5,000, and they harden their hearts. You see, when we doubt out of fear for ourselves... The reality is it has a way of hardening our heart. It can make us hard to receive, hard to experience. When we trust God in the midst of fearful circumstances, of things that are beyond our control, when we trust God in the face of even friends and family who uh, are, are persecuting us uh, or mistreating us, and I, I'm, I'm I'm even like hesitant to use the word persecution in many ways because I look at what the rest of the world is going through in comparison to what we're going through and sometimes I think it's almost disrespectful. But, but just in the sense of like when you and I feel pressed by others, friends, family, life situations, work situations or whatever else and then we start to uh, uh, doubt and we start to uh, resist sharing the gospel, we, resist, we become self-protective, uh, we begin to just kind of muddle back into the corner over there and we leave, church, we leave our Christianity at church and all those things. Listen, what happens is, is that our faith begins closing in on us and it begins to shrink and it continues to shrink until we look really, really powerless. And we lose our sense of expectation that God is with us, that he's for us. We doubt our ability to share our faith, and we even begin to explain all the things that we don't know versus what we do know, as if it depended on your knowledge, your ability, right? And we just keep, we just keep fading into the background. until we're as completely irrelevant as the world says we are. And it's not a condemnation. It becomes an observation. Or we follow the example of Jesus who continues to press in and he set the standard for us. I know you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but he's the son of God. But do you understand that the, the realities of his flesh 
were still very present. Remember, he was tempted in all ways that we are tempted and yet was without sin. And he has this sense of confidence and he begins to press into the Father. What does he do? He spends hours and hours alone. He, it's, it's one of the things he's known for of his time that he spends with his Father. Even when he spends his time with his disciples, what are they doing quite often? It says and that they were spending time with the Father. There is this communication, this expectation that you and I press in, and that it is by faith, and faith in its very nature is not by what I see. Faith is the confidence of the things I do not see, the things hoped for. You know, we could go into all kinds of details about those healings and all those kind of things, but can I just tell you that I really believe that if we want to see a greater outpouring of the Spirit of God in, in our day and in our moment, if we really want to see the fruit of that, if we really want to see revival in this nation like it is, that is not too far gone, church. I, I've, I've been in ardently secular cultures. This isn't one yet. If you think this is secular, let me invite you to go take a tour around Europe. I can tell you what ardently secular really looks like. This moment, this time in which we find ourselves, is an opportunity for you and I to step up boldly in faith. I don't mean in working ourselves into a lather. I'm not talking about a faith that is confident in uh, my knowledge or my ability or anything else. I'm talking about where I begin to immerse myself in the world of Jesus I begin to listen to his voice above the din of all the other noise in the world. I think it's interesting, C.S. Lewis, you know, back in the 30s, wrote, if I, was, if I was Satan, one of the things I would certainly do is I would make sure that the world just got busier and noisier until nobody had any time to spend with Jesus so they couldn't hear his voice any longer and they would no longer obey. Wow, what a prophetic word. Listen, church, you and I live in that moment. I'm going to even like invite you to do something I, I, I tend to do every uh, Lent for what it's worth. Do it, don't do it. One of the things I do most every Lent is I just turn off all media, social media, TV, the whole nine yards. Just get it off of my plate for six weeks, seven weeks, 40 days. Can I just tell you that one of the best things for my faith is just to tell everything to shut up long enough for me to hear the Holy Spirit of God. And so, can I just, it's an invite. Do with it what you will. All right. So, Verses 50 to 52 reminds us, hardening our heart and, and how it works on us and that even the disciples could miss out on what God was doing around them if they allow their heart to become hardened 
by their doubts and their fears and things like that. On the other hand, when we put our hands into the hands of Jesus, when we lean on the leadership of the Holy Spirit and our faith increases and our ability to experience God and hear His voice increases and that it becomes just like a great snowball gathering, you know, weight gathering size. We gather our faith, it begins to grow, it begins to explode and we experience greater works of the kingdom greater healing, greater boldness. I want to invite you to step up into what God is doing in this hour. Let's stand together. Listen, I think it's important that I say this as a disclaimer. I never want to chastise you or anyone over doubts or wrestling with faith. Like, I think that's an important part of this journey where we, we wrestle in moments with our doubts um, and we, we, in those moments, I think those are invitations from God to step up, to step in to His presence, to come more before His throne. Uh, one of the things, uh, John Bevere wrote a book a number of years ago on the desert, and one of the things he, he, he commented, and I thought it was so beautifully said, was that the desert is a place of romance. We don't think of it like that, because when we're thinking about romance, we're thinking about like we want waterfalls and jacuzzis and, and you know, and, but like the, the desert is a place of romance because there's nothing else to look at. There's nothing else of beauty that attracts us to the desert. The desert is, is a solemn place. It's the place where Jesus went into the wilderness to be alone with the Father. It's a, the, the place of romance is a place where I take my eyes off of everything else that can distract me, everyone else who can distract me, and then I put my eyes on the one whom my soul loves. And so I think there's a real value when we are encountering things in the world and doubt is beginning to press on us, that these are opportunities for us to wrestle with our faith, to experience more of the presence of God. It's called faith precisely because we don't see it and sometimes we don't feel it and we can't quantify it and it, sometimes it just defies the natural order of things all around us. And so if you are wrestling with doubt, as you're pressing into your faith, if you find yourself in this moment, I want to encourage you to get some prayer over any lingering doubts. That's not the same as unbelief. It's not the same as unbelief. This is not about hardening your heart. It's, it's those moments where we wrestle with the things of God, uh, where we wrestle with the things, maybe traditions or uh, family heritage, things like that, the things we've been taught and we're not sure is, is really true. And so we come to this place where we want God to work in our lives, but we're just not sure about some things. And I, I want to invite you to, to please get some prayer if you find yourself in that place. Remember that the people of Nazareth, see, they saw the healings and Jesus marveled that they chose unbelief. Unbelief is not doubts. Unbelief is a choice. So if you're wrestling with doubts, I don't want you to beat yourself up. I want to invite you to press in. That's what the disciples did. And so I want to invite you to come get some prayer. If you're here and 
man, you need some healing, you need deliverance, you need God to do something amazing, maybe even miraculous in your life, I want to invite you to come get that prayer as well. Can I have a prayer team members? Go ahead and come on up. And so our prayer team members are up here and available to you. And listen, the desire of their heart, why they come up each and every week, is to have the opportunity to pray uh, with you, to give you a safe space. Um, you could do that with the person next to you. That'd be fine. You, it, you don't have to like come to the front of the room. It's not like necessarily more holy or anything else. I, but there is intentionally a created safe space where you could come and get some prayer and ask people who will not only pray in this moment, but will commit to continue praying with you uh, through this season. And so let me invite you to come get some prayer if you need it for any reason whatsoever. Father God, we're grateful for our time together for this morning. We're grateful for what you're doing in our lives. But Lord, we're asking in this moment as we, we see that there's an invitation before us that the world around us is going through a tremendous upheaval and change, not just in our country, but around the world. And all of those things leave us in quandaries. We wonder where things are headed. We wonder what's going to happen, how things will develop. We're hoping for the best, but fearful of the worst. And oftentimes it is that fear that puts us in a place of, of, of doubt where we're wrestling with the things that we believe over against the mountain of evidence before us. And we are reminded as our eyes gaze upon the winds of the sea, as our eyes are on the upheavals, the pain, the suffering, that faith is where we press in, not by what we see, but specifically over and against our confidence in you in spite of what we see. Lord, would you come to us in this place? Would you fill us afresh with your Spirit? Would you open our hearts and our minds, and would you create a sense of expectation within us to be your people, not just in this place, but in the world around us, for the sake of others. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I hope you have an amazing week and that we get to see you next week. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others? by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.